Last week we finished the series called Lost in Translation. That series began with a, a, a look at a passage from Deuteronomy 6, specifically verse 4, something we call the Shema, which is at the heart of so much of Jewish worship and Jewish life, written on their heads, on their arms, on their doorposts, on their gates. We're going to start this series, You Can Have All This World, in the exact same spot. I've been wanting to do this series for a long time, um, and really it's about, Lord, world, <laughs> the only thing we want is the Lord, right? You can have all this world, as the hymn says, but give me Jesus. Deuteronomy 6, read this with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And at the heart of this series, this is what this is about. Learning to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. Jesus says that this right here is the greatest of all the commandments. He is asked, teacher... Which commandment is the greatest? There are many in the law. And he says, read it with me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And he adds on to it. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This series, I think, is appropriate for Lent, which is about giving up something, kind of. is really about taking on the fullness of of Jesus Christ, as we discussed at the Ash Wednesday service, um, Jesus himself says, this is my good food, to do the will of my Father, right? I also think it's interesting, this right here, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment, what is the greatest law, he comes here. And so in this series, we're going to explore the connection between law and love. Between faithfulness, obedience, and compassion, and even passion, and even romance. We find really that God's law is a love statement. In fact, the giving of the law, the giving even of the Ten Commandments, we're going to go all the way back. This is from Deuteronomy. We're going to go back before Deuteronomy today. We're going to spend most of our time in Exodus I'm going to make the argument that the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, fire, lightning, dark clouds, people gathered, is in and of itself a wedding banquet. Yes, that's correct. Weird? Maybe. Accurate? You tell me after. <laughs> Exodus 6, 6-7, we read this before, says this. Because I don't think it's far-fetched to think of it as a wedding, and in fact, I think most Jews would, certainly ancient ones and certainly modern ones, because they'll tell you as much. Exodus 6, 6-7 says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. This is before the Exodus happens. This is still while he's talking to Moses, preparing to deliver the people. He's giving them a promise of what he's going to do. Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. In other words, the Egyptians are oppressing you. You are enslaved in their land. I'm going to pull you out from under them. I will free you from being slaves to them. 
I'm going to pull you out from under them, and the shackles that are around your wrists and your feet I'm going to unlock. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I'm going to pull you out, I'm going to undo your shackles, and I'm going to pick you up and stand you strongly on your own feet. And I will take you as my own people. And I will be your God. I will take you, he says, the same way, right, that Isaac took Rebekah. The same way that Jacob took Rachel and Leah. I will take you. And this verb here is the same taking as a husband takes a bride. Jeremiah 2 says this, Remember the devotion of your youth. How you loved me like a bride and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. How does God himself refer to his people as he led them through the desert as his bride? Jeremiah 3, return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. Isaiah 54 says this, your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. All the book of Hosea is about the relationship between God and his people as that of a husband and a bride. Now, if it is a wedding, and a Jewish wedding specifically, there are going to be some markers. The first thing that you would expect to see at a Jewish wedding is called, say it with me, a chuppah. Yeah, try it again. Chupa. A chupa is a canopy, not altogether unlike this canopy that's over the drums so that you don't bleed out of your ears when we play music as cat hits them. You can see in the bottom left, this is a slightly more modern rendition, but a chupa is a traditional part of every Jewish wedding, and it's a canopy that resides over the bride and the groom that represents the covering and the protection of the Lord, the presence of God over them in this sacramental vow, in this intimate vow, this binding of two bodies together into one. That's a chuppah. The next thing you'd expect to see is a mikvah. Anyone know what a mikvah is? It's a ritual washing. Yes, that's right. Excellent work. I love to know you're paying attention. A mikvah is a ritual washing. If you go throughout Jerusalem, even today, you'll see these from ancient times, steps kind of like this. Every time you would enter the synagogue or uh, the, the tabernacle or the temple, they were all outside the temple, right? How is it so easy to baptize 3,000 people at Pentecost? Well, there were mikvahs everywhere, right? This is part of what they did. You descend into the water and you wash yourself before you enter the presence of God. So was the case at a wedding. The bride and the groom would go through mikvah, a ceremonial cleansing, before they bound themselves to one another. You would also expect ketubah. Say ketubah. A marriage contract. We write vows, typically, in our weddings, and we say them out loud, and then the best of us don't forget them. Right? In Jewish tradition, not only do you say your vows, you write them as a form of a contract. And it's traditional to make it beautiful, to frame it, to put it on your wall. And you make two copies of them. Why? Because there's two of you, right? 
And each of you is committing yourself to this ketuvah, this marriage contract. contract. And the last thing that you'll recognize as a sign, we use rings, and Jewish people today continue to use rings. Ancient times they would use uh, various other types of rings, nose rings, other sorts of things to indicate uh, this, this, uh, this bond, a sign of this marital bond. You would expect these four things at a Jewish wedding. Well, are they at Sinai? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai in Israel, camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be my treasured possession. And a cloud, if you read on, we'll summarize it, descends. Darkness covers the mountain. Fire bursts upon it. And it says the people stand. Yours will say at the foot of the mountain. And if you go into the, the region of Sinai, you'll see the mountains, unlike here where there's a large swelling, there's like flat and then there's a, a mountain. So you can actually get right to the foot of it. But the Hebrew communicates as well this preposition almost as if they stood under the mountain with this dark cloud covering the whole space. What is that called? Chuppah. Say it with me. Chuppah. Is there a chuppah at Sinai? And then God tells Moses to tell the people, have them consecrate themselves, wash themselves so that they will be made holy before me. What do we call that? Mikvah. Is there mikvah at Sinai? Yes. Ketuvah. Marriage contract. Moses goes up and the Lord with his finger inscribes on two tablets vows vows and a sign we, count, we have rings this is what Exodus 31 says then the Lord said to Moses say to the Israelites you must observe my Sabbaths what does a ring do? it sets you apart confirms that you belong to somebody else you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Was there a sign, a seal of this marital covenant at Sinai? Sabbath. The Sabbath. When we look at what God is doing at the very beginning the formation of his people. 
he's not just writing out a legal contract. It's not just law. It's not just obey me and I won't punish you, like so many of us have been taught to interpret it. It's not just the beginning of the kingdom of God being built and sent out to the ends of the world. Is it a legal code? Absolutely. Is it the beginning of the kingdom of God in many ways? Absolutely. Yes, it's an establishment of God's very kingdom, right? That will extend over the whole universe. But it's more than that. It's all these things. It's also God's way of saying, I love you. It was a 40-day courtship through the desert before they approached Mount Sinai. Even longer if you include the time in Egypt when he was winning them over. God, the groom, showing his worth, showing his might, showing his commitment and telling his bride, approach me here so that I can wed you. And you think of all that he did and you think of how much the people of Israel must have loved their groom. Think of the dirt and the muck that they knew and slavery and how they had been pulled out from under that yoke. How they had been set free from their shackles and picked up and stood on their feet and then looked in the eyes and said, be mine, be mine. And at every turn, Israel, even so, was obstinate, stubborn, thick-headed, and yet God loved them. So, if that's right, if this is a wedding, then the Ten Commandments we ought to understand as wedding vows, right? The Ten Commandments, wedding vows, these are God's way of saying, I love you, right? This is why Jews literally dance when the Ten Commandments are read. I can't do the dances very well. Right? A relationship without the Ten Commandments with God is like a relationship without the vows. Law, obedience, in many ways you could say is God's love language. Hear these Ten Commandments read in such a way, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no images, no idols. Don't take my name in vain. You hear that? Don't take my name in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, envy one another. Or, in language we might be more familiar if I was standing across, right, the aisle from the Lord. I love you. Over every nation in the world, I've chosen you. You will be my treasured possession, he says. But no other lovers. None. Not even statues or pictures of them. Don't even make a statue or a picture of me and look at me on your phone like, I, like you wish that I looked or like I looked when I was younger, you know. Love me where I am now, today, for who I am with you in the moment. And you're going to take my name. I give it to you. Use it well. Oh, and find time for me. Find time for me. Devoted attentive time for me as proof that you belong to me. And get along with one another. <laughs> it feels different all of a sudden. What we often call legalism 
what we call law and hard, cold obedience, God calls love. God calls love. God calls an invitation to a life of fruitful faithfulness and intimacy and embrace. So you want to show God you love him. This is what this series is about. How do we love God better? How do we love God even the way that God has loved us? How can we learn to love God with as much passion, as much devotion, as much romance, as much curiosity as God has shown for us? Tell God. Use your mouth. Say, God, I love you. God, I love you. But also show him. Prove it to him with your actions, with your deeds, with the way that you treat and care for one another, with the time that you devote specifically to him present and with us. This is no Old Testament thing. This is written throughout the New Testament as well. Jesus says, if you love me, you will. If anybody loves me, he says, he will keep my teachings. This is love for God, that you obey his commands. God saved Israel by grace, right? We're not talking about legalism. We're not talking about works righteousness. They came out of Egypt not because of how good they were, not because of how strong their military was. They came out because God, by his little powerful pinky finger, delivered them. It was grace through and through. There was no way they could part the Red Seas on their own. They didn't own any boats. It was grace, it was grace, it was grace, it was grace. And as God pulls his people by his grace out from under the yoke of slavery and bondage and to himself, he says, see how we can live together, my bride whom I love. Obedience is not a burden. It's a privilege. Obedience is not how we receive grace. It's what we get to live into when we've received it. It's the privilege of becoming the bride of the Almighty God. And because of Jesus, even though we're not Jews, even though our ancestors weren't there at Sinai with the Israelites in the desert, we've been grafted in fully. Nothing, nothing is out of our grasp. Do you remember your bride coming down the aisle? Do you remember your husband as you stood and as you looked? Do you remember that first night? What it felt like? How exciting it was? How thrilling it was? How intimidating maybe it was? Do you remember what it was like when you said, I do? When you read those vows, when they read those vows to you, you said, I do. Maybe you're not married and you can imagine what it might be like. The Israelites said, we do three times, Exodus 24. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and the laws, he comes down, right? They responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. And they said it three times. We will do it. We do. God, we do. God, we do. We do. My prayer is that we reclaim this passion, that we reclaim this understanding 
this breadth of, of God's love, this idea of being saved by grace, of course, but this sense of this love affair that we can have with our Lord, who himself loved us first, who himself told us he wanted to be our groom, to give God that thrill of romance that he's been seeking for. The story continues, you might remember. Moses was on the mountain with God, writing out this ketuvah. What's the ketuvah? He's writing out his marriage vows with, one, with, with, with God at the mountain. And God stops, and he says, Moses, go down quick. Why? The people had built a golden calf and had started worshiping it, worshiping it. At the wedding, they had an affair. <laughs> At the wedding, in the back changing room. Seriously. And God was furious. Can you imagine? Can you imagine all that he had done for them, all the love that he had shown for them, all of the proof? And then right as he's writing his vows out and preparing them for him, they go and turn to another. Moses goes down. I imagine he was trembling, both with fear and with anger. <laughs> but it wasn't because his hands were shaky and he just dropped the stones that they broke. It was because he saw what was happening and he smashed them as hard as they could. Did God break his covenant? The people broke theirs. Were the vows good anymore? They'd already been shattered before they could even begin. If you've ever read Exodus, you keep going after chapter 24, you'll see way too many boring chapters about architecture. <laughs> Familiar with this? We need uh, the curtain around the tabernacle. We need the Holy of Holies. We need to build the altar a specific way. We need to build the, the big water basin a specific way. Uh, the ark, for sure, needs to be a very specific way. You need to have the specific decorations. The ephod that the priest wears needs to be created a specific way. And as you read it, you're like, God, why is this in your book? It's really boring. It's really long. It's really confusing. It seems irrelevant. What do you do when you get married? You move into a house together. When you get married and you move into a house together, you decorate it together. You establish it in a way that is according to what is appropriate and good for your family and for your tastes and for your household. God is with Moses. He's writing out the plans to the house that he plans to build with his bride to live in and to go throughout the world with. And he goes down, and while he's putting his vows together, while he's planning this home together, he sees that his wife is having an affair. The covenant is smashed and broken. And then do you know what Exodus does? God forgives them, and immediately 
that whole description about how to build each of those components of the tabernacle are repeated almost word for word. Which is part of why it's so boring to read. And also a remarkable, 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 remarkable testimony that I pray you never forget. Because in the very moment that God is telling you, I want to build my home with you, and you break your vows, there is mercy, and there is God saying, all right, let's start again. I'm going to build a home with you. And so we all say together, God, we do. God, forgive us for our affairs, for the ways we've loved others. But God, build a home with us. God, thank you for initiating it. God, thank you for reminding us of your power, for being the first one to declare your love, even though we didn't deserve it, even though we were broken on the ground in shackles, naked, dirty, right. And yet you pulled us up and you washed us and you cleansed us and you covered us in your canopy. And have prepared a home for us even today. How do we say we do? What if every one of us, in our families, in our communities, individuals, corporate, stood up and every day asked God to clean us of our golden calves and then to hear him say, I love you, I love you enough to bring you here. And then for us again to say, Lord, this morning, this week, this year, God, I do. These commandments that you've given me, this covenant that we're making together, I will be faithful to it. And we say together, here, Israel, the Lord alone, none other, none like him, the Lord alone is our God. We will love you, Lord our God, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. And God, just like you love us and we love you, we'll love our neighbor. Lord, we do. I was asked not long ago, um, as a worship leader, it was, it was asked to me something like, what do you do? What do you play, listen to? What do you, what do, you do when you're not, when you're not worshiping? And it's a fair question, I think, probably well-intentioned, but it struck me akin to kind of asking the question, hey, what kind of girls are you into when you're not loving your wife? There's only worship. God's not halfway invested in you. God's not halfway in love with us. He doesn't turn it on and then turn it off sometimes. There's no middle ground. There's firm ground beneath our feet, at the altar, under the canopy. Our objective in this series is to love God the way he loves us. To be a bride fitting for her groom. Our objective is to love God with our whole hearts, souls, minds, strength, everything. And when I say that it's our objective in this series, I really don't mean 
it's our objective in this teaching series to teach you these sorts of things. I mean, it's your objective. It must be to love God with everything. It's not mine, Pastor Eric's objective that we would understand how to love God. No, 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 no. It is our goal. It is your goal today, now, forevermore to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. That he would be the only one Worship team, would you come up? God, would you be the only one? Lord, give us a glimpse of the depth of your goodness, of the depth of your mercy, of the depth of your love, God, of your character as groom. And Lord, with the Spirit, we say, come, come quickly. Father, we pray that you would pick us up again out of our own bile, out of our own sinfulness, out of our own shame as we've turned away from you, God. God, pick us up. Clean us off. Make us holy. Set apart for you. This is a corporate reality. By that I mean God picked a people, not just you as an individual, but a whole people to be his bride. And yet he calls each of us as individuals to the same altar. So on behalf of the Lord, I invite you to the altar to say I do for the first time, for the thousandth time, to say, Lord, these vows that you gave to me, I want to remain true to them. I want to be faithful to them. I want to obey, Lord. Not turn to the left or to the right, but look straight ahead into your eyes. If you'd like to say that at your chair, by all means, do it. If you'd like to come forward and receive time of, uh, of intimacy just by yourself, by all means do it. If you'd like to receive prayer, there will be elders and prayer team here ready to meet you. But don't look at them to meet them. Look at the Lord to meet him. Who brought you to himself to be his treasured possession.